We are in 1 Kings chapter 12, and it is the most pivotal chapter in the entire book because it is in this chapter that the 12 tribes of Israel become two separate countries. It is, in essence, if you think about it, the great falling away. And the reason I say that is, as it had been prophesied in the previous chapters, it was the fruit of a divided heart of Solomon. There had been great promises given to David from which Solomon did not keep. And God promised on both sides of that, by the way, what would happen if he did or he didn't. And now we are in this chapter where it's coming to fruition. There is a guy that God had promised would get 10 of the 12 tribes. If you've ever heard the term 10 lost tribes, it comes because of all of this. We will talk about that at a latter time. Uh, Also, you'll find before this point, if you're the kind of sort of a Bible student, you'll find that God often breaks up Israel as a whole and the entire to Judah and Ephraim. And the reason is the guy who starts leading the northern tribes will be from the tribe of Ephraim, as where the guy in the south, of course, will be, in essence, David's grandson, Rehoboam. To make it even worse, David's grandson's name is Rehoboam, and the other guy's name is Jeroboam, just to make it even worse. So obviously what they both have in common is Boam. Of course. And what's interesting is the word means people. And that's a good place to start. Uh, we have the Yeroboam, by the way, and his name means that the, the, that's the commander. And his name means that the people's contention. In other words, the people have a problem. Imagine, if you will, you name your kid the people's problem. On the other side of it, we have this other son. Now, this is the grandson of David. And his name, Rehoboam, literally means that the people make bigger. Or in essence, the people enlarge. We might say it in this way. The people have made him a superstar or they've made him bigger than he thinks than he really is. Is the idea of it. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the Lord right in prayer and let's jump right in because there's so much richness, especially in the time we're talking here, that if you're not a student of prophecy or one of those kind of end times kind of people and look at, I understand if you're really new to scripture, you're like, what in the world are you talking about? You need to know this stuff. And, and, I, and I, you need to know that this isn't something that God said, we should write the book of Revelation and really start getting going on the end of the time stuff. Uh, God's been dealing with it since the beginning. I mean, God has known the end from the beginning, and he's been laying out very clear examples that we see here, for instance, is one of those real classic places. So go to the Lord and pray with me, if you would. God, we pray today that you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit, come upon me and profoundly speak now to each of us. Lord, regardless of our biblical history, regardless of how deep the foundation is, whether we're really new in you or whether we've grown up walking with you, God, tonight, show us the depth and the beauty and the richness and the warnings that come in this chapter. And Lord, we really, really want to know you better. We sing it, we mean it. So I pray your scripture would come alive today. Captivate us in it, minister to us in it, and make us Bible students to better understand today because how you've shown us the past. In Jesus' name, amen. Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you and I'm going to come hard and heavy. So you might want to be ready for that. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts with, Rehoboam went to Shechem, For all of Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Now, David, of course, is in Jerusalem, was in Jerusalem, he's passed away. Solomon, king in Jerusalem, but they have gone to Shechem. 
I find that a very interesting place to start. Shechem, by the way, was a place of promise. It was the place where God told Abraham back in Genesis 12, 6, the land would be his, reiterated, by the way, in Acts 7, 16. But it is also the place that is famous for a rape. And forgive me for saying it that way, but it's just the truth. In Genesis 34, Jacob had been there. He had a daughter. They went to Shechem. This horrible false prince, if you will, saw her and raped her. Uh, And of course, the brothers, as a result of that, come back and get vengeance on all of the Shechemites that live there. It's kind of good to know that that's part of this history. It's a place of false, hear me on this, of false leadership raised up and abusing people. It is a place, by the way, in chapter 37, where Joseph brothers, also Joseph had gone to check up on his brothers and they were supposed to be there and they weren't. That is kind of key. And again, Joseph is betrayed by a group of guys who aren't elevated, but have elevated themselves in their own minds. It is though a place of refuge in Joshua 21, 21, where a manslayer could go for safety. It is a place where Joshua renews the covenant with the people and their God in 24-25. And by the way, it's the place where Joseph, that same guy that was betrayed there, was buried. That's in Joshua 24-32. But it is also the place, by the way, in the book of Judges. Do you know how many kings of Israel there are in all of the book of Judges? Only one. And it wasn't a king that people made king, but a king that made himself a king. And it was the only one who, by the way, was a legacy of a judge. His name was Abimelech. Gideon had actually been a deliverer of the people God had raised up, but he had a son, in essence, who was a punk. Slayed his 70 brothers, in essence said, why do you want to worship all of these guys when in the end of it all, why don't I just handle it for you? And so he declares himself king. And might I say again, it's a place of a false king for what it's worth, and now we have it here. Of all the places to make a king a king, this is kind of a funky place to do it, don't you think? Now, I remind you, there's two people. Just think of it as Rehoboam, our our RE is the son. Jerry, Yeroboam, on the other hand, was the commander of Solomon's army who had fled because God had promised that he would get 10 of the tribes. Verse 2. So what happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him too. Please notice this. The people, the congregation, the general populace of God's people were the ones who, in essence, called this meeting to ordain uh, Yeroboam, Rehoboam, and they're also the ones who've kind of called in this guy as well. The people are really, in essence, as a mob, making decisions here. Have you noticed that? So they came, they sent and called for this guy, Yeroboam, the commander. Then Yeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, and we'll serve you. So he said to him, depart for three days and then come back to me. And the people then departed. Now, here's the situation. The natural order of things, Solomon dies, his son's going to take over. But God had promised because Solomon's heart was divided with his thousand women and such. That he would only get the tribe of Judah for which he belongs to, to really rule. And the rest of it, in essence, is going to fall into the hands of his commander. So the people go and they go ordain Rehoboam, unaware of this prophecy. And they get this guy, Yeroboam, the old commander, 
And he sort of becomes their spokesperson. He's already a leader and he doesn't know it yet. And as he does, they have a simple plea. The prince has now become king, Rehoboam. And they're like, your dad, Solomon, made our life really rough. And it seemed like two things were heavy here. One was service and the other was burdensome. Now that's important to note. I want to remind you, Solomon was enormously wealthy. He was ridiculously and obscenely rich. So what in the world is he doing taxing the people with this kind of burden? When you turn away from the Lord, friends, you will have an increase of labor and a decrease of fruitfulness. And there becomes the problem. Solomon would have learned that and and he would document it in everything from Proverbs, starting in Proverbs and ending up in Ecclesiastes. Hold on. That was perfect timing. Thank you for covering up my sneeze. That was very thoughtful. So the people are asking, hey, could you take this burden off of us? Man, I mean, we've been working really hard, not just building the temple, but building his house, building this other house, you know, in the, you know, the house of forests, building all of these monuments and so forth. Man, we've been working really hard. Rehoboam, do we really need to do all of this? Could you just lighten our load a little bit? And if you do... We'll be more than happy to serve you, man. We, I mean, we, you know, other than that, it seemed like your dad was cool. So, and again, I'm loosely paraphrasing. If you would, just make our life a little easier, would you? So the people come because life's been rough and they want it easy, or at least easier. Verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, and he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. Don't miss this. Solomon in this chapter is going, and this will be a chapter of seeking counsel. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is going to seek counsel from two different groups of people. First, he's going to seek this counsel from the group that knew what it was like to be with his dad. I remind you, his dad knew hardship. His dad spent half of his life before coming king running from the incumbent king of the day. They knew hard times. They knew what it was like to fight for a living. They knew what it was like to scrounge for food and to have to trust the Lord in faith for every aspect of their life. That's what they knew. And because of that, they knew firsthand the provision of God the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and the victories of God. They knew all those things firsthand. They could tell you stories that they saw and experienced themselves. That's the first group. But then Solomon is going to ask a second group, the group of the kids that he grew up with. Now, the group of kids he grew up with were raised on the luxuries that came from the product of that first group. They were not a group that knew what it was like to fight for a meal. They were not the kind who had to worry about God providing the next meal because they kind of already knew what was on the menu in advance. And understand this. This is, gonna ha- this is one of the reasons why on fire Christian families tend to often have children, and we see it throughout Scripture, that just don't seem to kind of have the same passion. It's one thing to bequeath standards, morals. It's another thing to bequeath passion. And there's a, when you ask somebody who has actually been in the Bouviacs, 
somebody who's actually been in the foxholes and said, God, if you don't come through tonight, I'm a dead man. And when they tell you a story of how God provided, they tell it with a cracking in their voice because they remember how heavy it was that this was not that it would be cool if God did a miracle. It was essential that God did a miracle or we weren't going to make it. The way that he's restored your relationships, the way he's brought you sanity, the way he's delivered you from an addiction or several, the way that he's brought you out from a life that was so under the gun, you know those are firsthand stories. Never, never diminish the power of your own testimony because you think it may not be as lambastic as someone else's. But the second group, they don't have those stories. They, they have stories of watching David fail. And with watching David fail, watching coup attempts in the household, by the household. But they don't have those stories of the wilderness wandering like Moses did, or in David's case, fleeing in the, the wilderness of Judea, of Judah. I want you to note too in this, please don't miss this. Solomon first consulted the elders. I'm sorry, not Solomon, Rehoboam, his son. First consulted the elders. And as he first consulted the elders, he said, well, what's your advice? And they said, you know what? What the people are saying is a decent thing. You know, I mean, the idea of it is they are unnecessarily burdened. You don't have to make their life this rough. But the reason I want to point this out key is look at verse 8. But he rejected the advice the elders gave him. Verse 9, and he said to the others, what advice do you give? Please hear me in this because it's easy to miss this. I'm sorry, I got to stop saying that. Rehoboam had already rejected the first council before he looked for the second. It wasn't like he was scouting options. It isn't like, okay, well, let me hear everybody's side of the story. We'll put it all on the table. We'll pray and we'll see which one's right. By the way, I wouldn't be surprised if that isn't what Solomon looked like he was doing. But God knows better. And the reason I say that is there are times where when someone, you, someone says, well, what would, you know, what would the Lord do? What would Jesus do? What does scripture say? And you're giving them that counsel. And they're like, hmm, well, let me see. Let me check a couple other councils too before I get there where we just think, well, they're just kind of seeing which one it is where they may actually have had made up their mind anything but that. And that's where Rehoboam is. I remind you, God's seeing the inside here. We're not until God gives us this insight. So he's like, hmm, thanks, gentlemen. You're dismissed. All right, boys, what's up, homies? Yeah, yeah, what's up, bros? Right. Okay. Yeah. What, what's your advice? He rejected the first council. He sought to, to, and that was en route to seek the second. It wasn't like he was weighing out options and they can. And by the way, the simplest way to say it is, is often a person looks open-minded when they are actually closing their mind in the process. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of wise counselors is the idea. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. In Proverbs 15:22, it says, "Without counsel, plans go awry." But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. 
In Proverbs 24, 6, it says, By wise counsel, wage your own war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Now, not the multitude of different kinds of counsel, but godly counsel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, Don't be deceived. In other words, this is going to be one that will be easy for you to not believe until you're told otherwise. Evil company corrupts good habits. And, and let's face it, if you can't find someone to give you nonsense, nincompoop counsel, you can always find it online. It doesn't matter what you want to believe. It's fairly likely if you Google it, you will find somebody that's convinced they're right or at least wants to convince you they're right. Have you ever heard anyone tell you if you torture the evidence, if you torture the truth enough, you can get it to confess anything? And I've watched people twist scripture so bad that by the time they're done, you go, how in the world did you get that out of that? Well, you know, anyways, and so there's the idea. So he's seeking a second counsel, closing his mind to the first. Verse 9, it says, and he said to them, what advice do you give? How should I answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke in which our father put on us, your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you shall speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you will make it lighter on us. Well, this is what you should say to him. My little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. And that's an edited version, by the way. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. Literally, in other words, my dad whipped you with a whip. I'll whip you with scorpions. Now, obviously, somewhere in all of this, the young guys are like, and understand, this is the same as a kid who's never been in a gang thing, but he thinks it's cool to use terms like that and to dress like a gangster. He's like, yo, yo, I'm a gangster. I'm like, you've never been in a fight in your life. You've never even been in a thumb war, nonetheless, something that you had to fight for your life. You know, and I'm going to be honest, and pardon me, and I'll try not to go off on this too much. There are certain words that make me really angry. Wicked bothers me. And I understand if you don't know the Lord or you're coming to the Lord or you're new in it, I understand that. But for a Christian, go, oh man, that's so wicked. I don't get how that's good. Scripture tells us by the woe, it says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. But here's another one, and this one bothers me even more, is the term pimp. Now again, I recognize it as a different meaning today, but it doesn't. What we're saying in the simplest sense, if I'm going to pimp my anything is, is that pimps obviously have enough money to make whatever they do to make it to the best in its aftermarket products. If I pimp my car, it's going to be the coolest car with all the aftermarket products. If I pimp my stereo or I pimp my man cave or I pimp my whatever. But where I came from, pimping meant that was a guy who abused women and forced them into some form of sexual slavery. I don't get how that's cool. Now, from an unsafe world, I'm not going to go there. But within the body of Christ, it's a different thing. And the reason I say that is, is that if you've never really been around it, the word doesn't have that impact. When my daughters, when I remember the first time I asked my daughter, what kind of, what, oh, we just came back from playing this game in our youth group. What's it called? Mafia. And I gasped. I'm like, what? Yeah, it's just called mafia. See, where I come from, my grandfather was murdered by the mafia. I mean, sincerely. He was a, a CTA, Chicago Transit Authority, bus driver, like the bus drivers you see out there. And the, the family, as they're called, 
wanted him to run money from one side of the city to the other in his bus. My grandfather, strange, I know this is going to shock you, runs in the family, bit stubborn, says, oh, that ain't going to play. I ain't doing that. So after my grandfather had taken my grandmother on this beautiful dinner date, he walked up the flight of steps once they got inside their Chicago home up to the top uh, area so that he can go. And there were two men that were there and threw him down the flight of steps, sp- crushing his skull open and splattering his brains all over the shoes of my grandmother. She was never the same. No, again, the whole point of it is, for me, mafia has a real meaning. For my daughter, she's never been around that. So for her to say that and treat it casually, it's an entirely different thing because it doesn't have the same depth. The reason I'm saying that is that's what we have here. We have two groups of people. We have a group of... And by the way, I've also not entertained by gun games. Now, there are others who are, and I'm not dissing you if that's the case. You won't be, by the way, you will not be taking me paintballing. It just doesn't happen. Uh, it took me a long time to even play laser tag. I've had literal, I've had real guns pointed at me, and once you have real guns pointed at you, it's just not really that fun to have a gun pointed at you, even if it's like, ha-ha, this one's fake. Well, anyways, all of that to say this. I know you're like, wow, my pastor is messed up. <laughs> well, yeah, praise God, because this is the whole point of going to church. We're the hospital, and sometimes the doctors need it too, right? Well, get this in this. There are two groups of people. There are the older ones who've had the gun pointed and that know what the mafia is, that know what a pimp is. And those terms mean something to them. And he's like, what do you think? He's going, these people are like, their life is unnecessary. They're saying their life is unnecessarily hard. What are we going to do about it? And he's like, yeah, I think you should listen to them. Solomon's putting burdens that aren't necessary on them. And then there's another group of people that are like, you know what? We should come at them hard and heavy. And like, yo, you want to mess with me? I'm a gangster, man. I'm a gangster. You know, and I just rat a tat and bust a cap on y'all, y'all, right? And he's like, you don't even know what that means, right? Well, that's the idea. Look at what you want to, you want to come to me all hard and have you want to call my grill? Well, sup? I tell you what, oh man, you thought my, you might find my dad was bad. I'm gonna bust y'all. I'm gonna bust y'all. Well, that's kind of what we have here. You can imagine the people aren't going to be real excited. Well, they're going to be excited, but in no pleasant way. Verse twelve. So you're a bone. And all of the people came to Rehoboam. Now notice, by the way, Jeroboam's kind of their spokesperson already. He's already a leader. He doesn't know it. On that third day. By the way, for what it's worth, as a Bible student, study the third day. I do find interesting the first time, of course, you see it is in creation. That should be understandable. Genesis 1.11. But it's the first of the days of creation where something bears fruit. I think that's interesting because that's what we're seeing now. So Yeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. And the king, of course, we recognize ultimately that will be Jesus' third day and how beautiful that is. As the king had directed, saying, come to me on the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, rejected the advice the elders had given him, which tells us that, by the way, and the, the tenses on this is that it kept coming up in his mind and he kept rejecting it until he finally just rejected once for all. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, I'll add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, I'll chastise you with scorpions, with scourges is the idea. Now, the king did not listen to the people. You probably figured that part out, didn't you? And what he was saying in the simplest sense was, look at if you really kind of remove what is unnecessary to him, They'll, be, they'll serve you. But instead, he's like, you think that that, you, you think it was rough before? And he's turning into a tyrant. 
The king did not listen to the people. The turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken to Achia, that's the last chapter, the Shilonite, to Yerubon, the son of Nebat. Literally, by the way, do you notice, if you look at this, it says the turn was from the Lord. Do you notice of events is in italics? What that means is that's added. What's literally in the text is that the turn was from the Lord. Was it the turn of events? Yeah, sure. But was it also the turn of the people? When you see that they will not listen to you, I'm sorry, when they see that you will not listen to them, they're going to leave. Verse 16, Now, when all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, Well, what share do we have in David? And I remind you, that's Solomon's dad. That's Rehoboam's grandfather. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, which is David's dad. To your tents, O Israel. Now, see to your own house, O David. You get it? Yo, we're bailing. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Those are the southern tribes originally. Then King Rehoboam, now somewhere in all of this, it kind of blows over, right? The people have kind of gone to their tents and Rehoboam's kind of sitting there going, well, that really wasn't the inauguration I was hoping for. How about you? A little bit embarrassing. Everyone kind of went home angry. Well, but I bet things will kind of go back to normal. You ever have one of those moments where you've had a disagreement with someone that's a friend or even, dare I say, worse yet, your spouse, and you feel like, oh, you know, and, and you, just, you just all of a sudden it kind of blows over and you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. And then there are these other moments you're like, well, that'll blow over. And then later on it just flies back and you're like, whoa, didn't realize that was going to last. Well, that's kind of where Rehoboam is. And he sends Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. Now, if Adoram is in charge of the revenue, what is he basically? That's so good, Adam. He's right. He's a tax man. Now, I remind you, that tells me, by the way, remember, Solomon was ridiculously rich. Now he's sending a guy to go get the taxes. Any of you want to volunteer to be a Dorum, by the way? You know the people are already upset about it. So King Rehoboam sent a Dorum, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Now, by the way, you're probably aware that stones are a very effective tool to stone someone with. Now, if you're going to stone me, I recommend marshmallows, but what do I know? Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion with the house of David to this day, which, by the way, tells me this was not just some story told by a bored Jewish guy to another bored Jewish guy hundreds of years later, because this can only last for a hundred and some years. Now, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation. Notice they again, this is the peoples. And made him king over Israel. There was none who followed the house of David except the tribe of Judah only, which again is where David's from. Now we have the people. Now don't miss this. The general massive people, 10 twelfths of the people, because Benjamin in essence, for the most part, are going to wind up just because, by, if nothing else, by virtue of them being next to, uh, geographically next to Judah, they'll wind up for the most part with Judah and the renegade Levites who will wind up back in Jerusalem. But those 10 tribes have all said, you know, kind of we took a vote and we want this guy as our king. Now, please hear me in this. The Bible makes clear there is going to be a day 
when there will be a man who will be raised up from a European Union. Notice I didn't say the, but a European Union. It's told as the revived Roman Empire, the toes made of brass and clay. It will have ten sections or regions, three of which will fall, and in their stead will rise up this individual. This individual will get into a contract with Israel. One thing that the Christian has known from the beginning, if you want to watch how the world is going to wrap up, keep your eyes on this tiny little plot of ground smaller than than the country of Wales. That's Israel. Don't you find it a little interesting, even to this day, how much attention Israel gets? It's this tiny little place. And at this point, isn't giving oil to the rest of the world. I mean, it's giving produce. Yippee, guess what? We get some lemons and Jaffa oranges from there. But why is that place so important? Why is that place such a hub? Because God said it would be. And the man is going to get into a covenant there that is a seven-year covenant. And right in the middle, at three and a half years, he's going to break that covenant with the people, stand in a temple that is built, and declare that he is the only thing allowed to be worshipped on earth. He will demand that the people, if they are going to buy or sell anything, receive a mark. Now, I'll be honest with you. A hundred years ago, that sounded like madness, didn't it? The idea that the whole world would be ruled by a single individual, that he'd be able to make an announcement for the entire world to see. That Israel would be a focal point because Israel hadn't been a nation for over a thousand years, nearly two. That people could not, and to buy or sell with a mark meant that there was no tangible exchange. Hear me on that. No tangible exchange. Tangible exchange means, you know, Sutsi's got a bottle of water. I have three clams. Sutsi goes, I like clams. I'll swap you the clams for my water. And I'm like, good. I hate clams. Here we go. Actually, I do like clams, but you get the idea. There's a tangible exchange. How long has it been since there has been a no tangible exchange in this, in this world? It's only been a couple of years, hasn't it? Now, Bruno can actually walk up to a Sainsbury's, grab a bunch of groceries, put them in a bag, and tap his watch on a device and walk away. The cashier has received nothing but data. Let's be honest, and she hasn't even gotten that. That goes to somewhere else. He went, bloop, maybe not that noise, and she's like, thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Now, that's it. We live in a, we, for the first time in history, We live in a world where we can have a non-tangible exchange. Do you realize how close we are? Don't miss this. In the Old Testament, Israel had a weakness with idols. So you know what God did? You ever heard, "Like like a cigarette, have a cigar mentality? Kid wants to try a cigarette. Someone sticks a cigar in their mouth. Obviously, that's a little bit more potent. They get nauseous. They barf all over themselves. And they're like, I'm never going to do that again. 
In other words, you like a little bit, try a lot and see how horrible it really is. So they started messing with idols. As a result of it, God sent them to Babylon. They never went, again worshipped idols. You never find it after that. So what is Israel hungry for now? Who is it that they elevate? What is it that they elevate now? According to the Jerusalem Post, it said, we want peace. Be him an angel or a devil. We do not care. We will call him Messiah. Headline of the Jerusalem Post. People are worshiping man. God goes, you want a really superman? Well, guess what? You are about to find a superman that will actually make you marvel. Now, I'm aware that Superman's not of the Marvel universe, but you get the idea. And the idea of it is, he goes, let me show you what that's like. And his name, according to scripture, is the one who is anti-Christ. But it's important to recognize anti or anti means two things. It means against, but it also means in replacement of. And he is exactly that. Now, the reason I say that is, what we have in the rest of this chapter really points us right to that. Take a look for a moment at the way that Jeroboam starts. Remember, Jeroboam, that's the commander, starts to step up and what he does. First of all, what we find is Rehoboam has now lost 10 of his tribes, hasn't he? What do you do when you find loss? When God takes something away from you, what do you do? It says in verse 21, Then Rehoboam came to Jerusalem. He assembled all the house of Judah, notice, with the tribe of Benjamin, who were, by the way, always quick to jump in a fight, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom of Rehoboam to the son of Solomon. You know what happens? When you feel that God's taken, maybe you don't recognize it's God taking it away, but if, when something starts leaving you, what we tend to do is we tend to recruit and fight. And we've watched this. People fall into moral failure. People do things that really just hurt other people. And you step in and you're like, we have to insulate. That can't happen anymore. And they get so angry. They recruit people to their fight. But notice in this that what Rehoboam was doing is he's recruiting people to jump on his side to kill family. That's still, it's still Israel. It's still his relatives on the other side. And this is the house. This is God's people rallied up to fight and kill God's people. Don't miss that. But the word of the Lord came, or word of God came to Shemaiah. Shemaiah, by the way, means God has heard. Great name for this guy. The man of God saying, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, to all of the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people saying, thus says the Lord. You shall not go up to fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. I do love the fact that God used the prophet to talk sense. And he goes, you guys realize you're killing brothers here, right? You realize those are still God's people too, right? And you realize God's actually doing this. There is a separation here. You don't have to like it. But you're not fighting man, you guys. You're fighting God. The same thing Gamaliel said in Acts 5, 34 through 37, isn't it? Then Rehoboam. Now let's talk about Jeroboam. First of all, please hear me on this. When God spoke to this guy, the commander, Jerry, Jeroboam, back in the last chapter, 
please hear me, it says this in 1 Kings 11.38. It shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in all my ways, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Don't miss this. God had already spoken to Jeroboam and said, please hear me in this. He said, Jeroboam, you're about to get 10 tribes. I'm giving them to you. God speaking, I'm giving them to you. You're not earning them. You're not winning them. I am giving them to you. And because I gave them to you, and all you have to do is by faith accept that and walk in it, you can keep them as long as by faith you accept and walk in me. It's that simple. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, if you have to fight to gain, you have to fight to maintain. If you have to fight to get it, you're going to have to fight to keep it. If you have to change yourself to get someone's affection, you're going to have to stay changed to keep it. When God gives something to you, it's by grace and by faith you receive it. And he says, as long as you're willing to still walk in faith and trust me, you never have to worry about me having to take it away. Unfortunately, that's not going to be Jeroboam's situation. Jeroboam built Shechem. Remember that place? The place with all the history of like rape and bad kings and bad royalty? He builds up Shechem because that will be the southern part of his kingdom in the mountains of Ephraim. Mind you, he's an Ephraimite. And he dwelt there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. By the way, Penuel, don't miss that, is Peniel as well. That literally means the face of God. It's the place where limping Jacob would go or walk out of. Genesis 32, 31. Now verse 26. Does this sound like a guy of faith? Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, that sounds like the opposite of faith, doesn't it? And just note, the product of the opposite of faith is going to be fear. And what he says is, you know, three times a year, a good, every able-bodied Jewish man is required to go to Jerusalem for these feasts. The first one's in the first month, that's Passover. Then 50 days later, Pentecost, that's what it means. Pentecost means 50. That's the feast of the first great harvest. And then... In the seventh month, the feast of the last great harvest. In scripture, by the way, we have seen major events happen with the first two. Don't miss that. The first, Passover, the celebration of freedom out of the land of bondage, out of the house of slavery. That's when Jesus dies and is resurrected during Passover. Our lamb was slaughtered, the firstborn died, and we were set free. Perfect Fulfillment. The second, the first great harvest, churches call themselves Pentecostal because of Pentecost. But on Pentecost, it wasn't just that the Holy Spirit fell on people and the 120 people started speaking in languages, which by the way, at least one or two of them spoke just the language they knew. That's clear from the text. But that 3,000 people got saved on that day because it was the feast of the first great harvest. We just don't have any major event happening yet on the last one, 
the one of the seventh month, the feast of the last great harvest. Are you with me? Follow me. You guys nod or something, breathe. Okay, good. Now, don't miss this. This guy is looking and he's like, I'm going to have to do something to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem to worship God like God wanted. Hear me on this. This is driven by self-preservation. Would you agree? The guy's like, hey, let's face it. If if those guys go down there, they're going to kill me. That's the end result. I can't have that happen. Even though God said, don't worry, if you follow me and you obey me, I'll take care of everything. But clearly Jeroboam's not going there. So he's like, if you're not going to let God do it, you're going to have to spend all your time now trying not trying to stay alive. So he's like, okay, I have to change everything. I have to stop them from worshiping God the way God told them to worship him so that I can make sure that I get what I'm supposed to get here. And now we start seeing not only the motivation, but now the practices of the one who is instead of. Well, get this. So the king asked advice. Oh, more bad advice. Don't you just need that? And they said, make two calves of gold and say to the and, and made two calves of gold. And then he said to the people. Now, I want you let's read this with our hearts, you guys, because I want you to realize how this looks to the church today. If this guy is leading people away from the Lord is what he's doing, isn't he? He's leading them away from proper worship of the Lord. He's leading them away from Jerusalem. He's leading them away from the place that God had already just said two chapters ago. My heart and my eyes will always be on this place. If you turn towards this place, I will hear from heaven my dwelling place and I will forgive. Man, just do it. And this guy goes, whatever I do, I can't let them go there. Now hear me on this. He made two calves of gold and he said to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, he put the other in Dan, and that became a sin for all the people who went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests on every high class of people who were not sons of Levi. Yerubim ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. The real feast was on what month? Do you remember? The seventh month. Yep, he's a month late. Like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. And so he did at Bethel, according to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places in which he had made. This is the crux of what needs to be said. And we close this up. You got to hear this. Here's how it starts. Listen, remember how the people are like, could you make our life a little easier? It's been burdensome, man. Been working hard and taxed to death. So guess where he starts with this? Listen, this is how it happens to remove away from true worship. First thing, boy, that's so much work, doing it the way God told you. Now, I'm not talking about Solomon now. We're talking about God. Boy, man, going to Jerusalem? Man, that's just so inconvenient. And so the first thing he did is he made this new thing more convenient. That's what he did. Now, you hear this. Now, look it. We are certainly not the church for everyone, which is good news because we couldn't fit everyone. But if it's like, well, I just need to go to a church in my neighborhood because I want to invite people. Awesome. Invite people, but go to a good church. But just because it's convenient doesn't mean it's good. There's a lot of churches in our area that I wouldn't dare 
that I wouldn't frequent unless there was a reason that involved having a genuine conversation. And again, just because it's convenient doesn't mean it's bad. But that cannot be the motivating factor. And what he said is, boy, that Jerusalem thing, that's like really inconvenient. That's in the south. You guys are in the north. Clearly, come on, you're in the north. Do you realize how far it is? You have to hop on a train, for goodness sakes, a train. And sit in a tube, sheltered from the weather. You don't have to gather your horses and work through the, the lightning and the thunder and the rain. Oh, no. But it's an extra 15 minutes on a tube. Well, you get it. That was the first thing he did. He's going to make it more convenient. Second, he made golden calves here. And that means he makes it more tangible. I mean, come on, a God you can't see? Oh, come on, what kind of faith is that? Come on, you can see this cow. And clearly this is a cow that delivered you. This cow that I just made delivered our people hundreds of years ago. I don't get that. Uh-huh. 600 years ago, we were delivered by a cow you just made. Is it a time-traveling cow? Is this Dr. Moo? Well, you get it. Now, sorry, I'm a pastor. I get it. Yeah, I had to. That was kind of like, that was like a grenade, right? I had to ju- throw it, wait for it to blow. Listen, he goes, we need this to be more tangible. You have to be able to see more, feel more, touch more. Come on. And then he says, here are the gods, O Israel. Notice it's not just one. Even though it's a cow in one place and a cow in another, here are the gods, plural. The third thing is he makes it more broad. Come on, one-way, close-minded Christian. My sister-in-law says, you know, you could become so open-minded that your brain spills out. You know, the idea is like, look, at here are the gods, and if they're gods, plural, then let's just face it, first of all, then who has a right to be able to say their way is right versus another? Come on, we're steeped in that. You know, and it's like, oh, come on, do you really, I mean, do you really have a chutzpah to say Jesus is the only way? Do you realize that's hate speech? Not if it really is true. But let's face it, if you were dying from a disease and you were really feeling it and knowing death was imminent and I had an answer, you wouldn't go, I don't like your answer. What else you got? I can't believe you think that's the only way. At that point, you'd just be happy there was a way. But when there are gods, plural, not only now do you get to kind of go, come on, everything's cool. Let's join hands and sing Kumbaya. And it doesn't matter what you have and wear your whatever and do whatever and everything. Practice it whatever way you want. You on your yoga mat and you over here with your burqa and you over here with your sword and your bomb and you over this. Hey, we were just walking. Uh, Shamar and I were walking by this place and we thought we heard worship music. At least I did. I'm like here and they're like, ah, and the music's in the background and it's clearly coming out of windows. And I'm like, wow, sounds like a few people and they're really going for it. And then we listened closer and it was a yoga place singing Hare Krishna. And it sounded exactly like a worship service as far as I'm concerned. You can ask Shamar what he thought. And it's like, you know, and, and there are people that are like, come on, man, aren't we all the same thing? 
So there you are. You're a pharmacist. You've spent your whole life studying how to administer proper medication to people. And next to you is a guy on the train, and he's a drug dealer. And he's like, come on, brav. We're all doing the same thing. You deal drugs. I deal drugs. What's the difference? I'm like, you kill people. I don't. That's kind of a big difference. You've got to guarantee you if anything I was doing is going to children, it's to keep them alive. But it's amazing. You're like, come on. You're spiritual. I'm spiritual. Isn't it the same thing? You're a chiropractor. You help straighten someone's back. I punch people in the back. What's the difference? Big difference. Big difference. One hurt, one helps. You're your gods, O Israel. And by the way, the moment that I realize it's plural, then I become a consumer. Let's be honest. Now I get to pick and choose whichever one I think I have to give the least to so I can get the most. And so I'm going shopping for my God now, which is the one that lets me have sex with whoever I want, do drugs whenever I want. Where's the God that actually says, I can make up my own rules, but he's got to give me everything I want. Where does our Lord fit into that? Finally, who brought you out of Egypt? He makes it about an event, not about life. Way back when, these are the gods who did this great thing. And so whenever you get a chance, pop up to them and ask them for what you want, like Oz, rub their belly, do their thing, whirl your dervish, spin around, eat your yogurt, get in an uncomfortable position, put on your white robe and sit in a cave, wait for whatever you have to do, beat yourself in the back, and when you're done, you'll get what you want. Because after all, aren't gods just basically genies with a bigger G? No, they're not. Not the real one. And what this guy is doing, you guys, is what we see happen in our country here. It's what we see happen in the West, not just here. And that is, come on, if it's too difficult, what that means is what we need is a Christianity without sacrifice. A Christianity without sacrifice? Let me tell you what Jesus said. If you do not pick up your own cross daily and follow me, you're not even worthy of calling yourself a Christian. Let's not play games. A Christianity without sacrifice is not Christianity. It's consumerism. Let's not play games with that. And it's plural. Oh, come on. Jesus is a way. A way. Jesus falls down in the garden and says, Father, if there's any other way, please don't send me to the cross. And God the Father lets him go and get tortured to death anyways. What kind of dad would do that? Is that a God you want to serve? Oh, I'll just pick whatever I want and pick it at the buffet line. I'll have a little bit of salvation and a whole lot of blessing and some forgiveness whenever it's... But uh, I decide right and wrong anyway, so I really don't need that much forgiveness. But in the end of it all, and it's about an event. Oh, the God of the Bible, you know, he did these cool things here and there, but he wants a relationship with you. When you've got these gods of Egypt, you don't have any relationship with them. And he sets them up in Bethel, which, by the way, is the southern border, if you will. It heads towards the south. Oddly enough, it means house of God. And Dan, which is the northern uh, cap. By the way, you read before this from Dan to Beersheba. That's actually the literal uh, north to south tip. 
But now Beersheba is all part of that southern area, so now we have to make a new one, so it moves it north to Bethel. In other words, if you're going to head down to Jerusalem, you're going to hear me on this, if you're heading down to Jerusalem, you have to go through Bethel, which means you're going to actually go through the golden calf area. You have to go around it to get to Jerusalem. And not only do you have to get around it, you have to go around it and deal with the chiding and the mocking of the people who have decided to go there, and that was good enough for them. And they're like, oh, you stupid fundamental Christian, who do you think you are? You know, what about the rest of us? You know, you're kind of going overboard with this Jesus thing. Well, let's face it, come on, this is good enough. This is convenient. This doesn't cost us anything. When was the last time your or my Christianity really cost us anything? I mean, anything. A friend, a look, anything. How does that look like Jesus to me? And I realize a lazy spirit will settle for what's in root and not deal with the hassle of having to go around the majority for what is real. Hey, I can touch this, I can smell this, I can hear this. And then it says he made shrines on all these high places. Let's come on. It doesn't. You want church can be anywhere you want it to be. It could be out when we surf. It can be out getting a burger or a pizza. Hey, we had church. Why? Because a few people that call themselves Christians came in when we went into a Pink Floyd concert. That was church. Well, it's anywhere you want, man. It's a shrine on whatever high place you want to put it on. And he made priests from every high class of people. Notice the next thing he does. As he says, you know, I can decide my own standard on what's going to be God's reps. It doesn't have to be about character anymore like it is in First Timothy and Titus. I can make it from anyone I want. And then he sets new holidays, verse 32. Now, don't miss this because we're almost done. But please, if this sounds like a tirade, it's because it really is the angst of my heart. Because this is a trajectory. This isn't just us pit stopping here. We are on our way. Hear me on this. In Matthew 24, when they're asking about the end times, Jesus talks about false Christs and false prophets. And then he says this crazy statement, where the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Now, he had just said that there were false Christs and false prophets. Well, who are they in the comparison of a carrion and vultures? They're the vultures. They eat well, what is, a, what is a carcass? It's a dead body. Well, who are the false Christs and the false prophets feasting on? The body of Christ. I think it was Spurgeon that said, when the amalgamation is complete, where the sons of God really do amalgamate with the daughters of women, then the wrath of God will pour forth once again as a flood. That's what God's waiting on in this, if you will. And he tells us that this will not happen until a great falling away comes first. And this is what it looks like. You want to see what a falling away looks like? It looks like this. It looks like, let's go with a sacrificeless Christianity that is convenient and consumer-driven and all about blessing me and has nothing to do with eternity anymore and has nothing to do with serving you and getting Jesus to you. It's all about me getting mine. And that's what we have here. So you ordained a feast on the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah. Note this, even though he has new holidays, there's still rip-offs of the original. Do you notice that? And might I say, the devil is no creator. He's only an imitator. He'll take what, you, what God offers and he'll flip it in his own way. 
By the way, you're probably aware of the fact that the Anglican Church has just voted to have a whole new holy celebration for gender transition. Do you know this? Where you can come and they do this whole thing in the church. Now you are a girl and now you're a guy. You're a guy or you're a girl or whatever. And they're going to go and they're going to give you this holy new name and this whole thing and they give you the whole oil and the water and a whole bit. It's the whole thing. Hey, congratulations. You've decided that's the way it is. That's a new holiday. And it's simply a ripoff of one God invented. Not that specific one, but you get the idea. Now, then he makes a new focus for sacrifice. They sacrifice wherever they want now, not where God ordained. And by that way, that means that it's no longer about the cross. Now it's about other things. Christianity is about getting jackets to homeless people. But if everybody has a jacket, it's not going to help them when they walk into hell. I'm not telling you that we shouldn't give jackets to homeless people. But I'm telling you, everything is revolved around the fact of getting Jesus to these people and not just jackets. And here's the problem. Because he still did sacrifices, it still had enough tradition in it to make it feel like you were doing something right, even if it was wrong. So let's put it in a stained glass building. Let's make sure it's tall and it's got a lot of rock on it. You know, and let's make sure it's cold and dank and it's got pews. And then we can do pretty much whatever we want. And you're still going to think it's church. It really doesn't matter because it's, you know, I mean, sacrifices now don't have to be sacrifices. Now, with that in mind, he made these offerings. Verse 33. And by the time we're done, the king himself has installed a priesthood. He has ordained his priests, his way of sacrifice, his church, his way of it, his locations for it. He has dictated everything. And hear me on this. He becomes the king. By verse 33, it says, he made offerings. He, the king, made offerings on the altar, which was at Bethel, which, by the way, is supposed to be limited to a Levite priest, on the 15th day of the eighth month, instead, of course, of the seventh, on the month which he had devised in his own heart. By the way, I challenge you, in Daniel, it tells us he changes times and seasons. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar himself and burned incense. In the end, he becomes the king, the priest, the head of both the secular government and the religious. He is the despot to all, and worse yet, the people propelled him into this position. They're the ones who said, we want you. This is a foretaste of the coming attractions. The people are going to say, hey, you brought world peace. Hey, you're ending famine. These are great things. They're not the greatest thing, but they are great things. But he'll have no respect for the love of women, nor for the God of his fathers. That's clear according to the book of Daniel. And he'll clearly have a trail of destruction behind him. And he'll have no moral compass. And the worst part about it is the people will be the ones catapulting him into that position. Because, And here's, to me, the worst part is that the church in mass will be behind it. And it isn't because he doesn't seem like a decent guy. It's because they're not reading their Bibles and recognizing, and they'll be making fun of people like me, dare I say, and hopefully you too, who, by the way, have read this and gone, hmm, this smells an awful lot like what God promised. 
Now look at just because a guy tries to solve world hunger doesn't mean he's the Antichrist. For him to be an Antichrist, I know this is going to seem simple, means he's going to have to be against Christ. That should be pretty simple, right? But he can be against Christ or instead of Christ. And I remind you, Jesus said many false Christs will come. In other words, it's one thing to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. And it's another thing to say, but do you believe in my Jesus, the Bible's Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, or do you believe in a Jesus you made up? Because they could say, hey, we do sacrifices. We sacrifice to God. Well, what God? The cow God, Apis, delivered us out of Israel. I'm sorry, delivered us out of Egypt. Funny, that's not my God. No, come on, it's all the same God. My God is not a cow. Never been a cow. That is utterly ridiculous. Sorry, there's another one of those. So hear me on this. There's one God who seeks relationship with man and does that through one sacrifice. The one begotten son who told us to forsake the buffet for one mediator, one ransom, and one Lord, Jesus the Christ. Because that same Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. And all of heaven will proclaim him. All of the earth will proclaim him. And at every time that's ever been, and all mankind that's ever been, will stand before him. No one else. Nothing else. No other option. And that's what scripture teaches. You could say that's closed-minded. <coughs> but just because it is does not mean it's wrong. And I'm here to tell you that my God died for you. Nobody else offered that. My God paid for your sins. Nobody else offered that. <coughs> my God died on a cross for you. No other guy did that. My God beat death and rose on the third day. No other guy did that. So exactly, is it okay for him to be in a class of his own? Everything he did was in a class of his own. Why in the world would we lump him with all the losers? And that's the God we need to say yes to tonight. And may God deliver us from a crossless, sacrificeless, selfish, self-consuming, consumerized, quote-unquote Christianity that really isn't Christianity at all. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for this amazing chapter. <coughs> and I realize... This really is a slap-in-the-face foretaste of what, what is to come. And we're living in a culture where the body is dying. Jesus, your hands and feet are not reaching out with the grace of, of the gospel to lost mankind, nor seeking even to serve each other, but rather just grabbing for themselves for more and more and more that they can't take with them. And I confess to you, it is so easy to concede to the convenient. It is so easy to surrender to those things that are in essence trite and mundane and meaningless in the sight of eternity. God, I do not want to be on Jeroboam's side on all of this. And I recognize in all of Scripture... Of all of the sins that have specifically been attributed to an individual... No one sin 
is spoken of more than this one. The sin of Jeroboam. 22 times in First and Second Kings. 22 times. You are constantly reminding us of this chapter. Constantly reminding us what he did when you offered him something, but he didn't take your way. And instead he chose to warp everything you were about so he could be the despot he wanted to be. Guard us, Lord, from being led astray by false signs and wonders, by some blabbering monster that looks so righteous on the outside from the sight of a social world, but so unrighteous in the sight of Scripture. And in the same way, Lord, as we look at this chapter, we see in the beginning Rehoboam who turns his eyes away from proper counsel to receive something that's more young and more driven by fierceness and less by grace and truth. Deliver us from that. And let us be people who are willing to take the tried and true counsel you've given us in your word and to test all things by it, including this. And Jesus, we are not going to proclaim you as an option. You are the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through you. You are the one mediator between man and God. We recognize that. And we recognize the world's not going to stand up and applaud to that stance. They'll even think of it as hate speech, which is insanity as far as I'm concerned. Because it's the greatest love there is. The love that actually delivers people and sets them free and makes them new. The enemy has convinced them that the very cure that transforms them is actually their enemy. God, do not let the church buy into that rubbish and make us people, God, tonight that embrace your truth and pick up our cross and follow you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.